Well, good morning. Great singing. Um, I wasn't kidding. I told first hour, too, you know, all this laughing in church. I don't know about that. It's, um, it's supposed to be serious in here. Uh, as you can see, I'm not uh, Pastor Jack. He had a little accident this week. Uh, before I tell you about that, though, I just want one other missions uh, opportunity that we have here is not only uh, supporting Honduras, but also uh, there's a ministry in Hollywood, Hope Again, that has uh, developed a tremendous need for particularly food and supplies. Uh, they have a great ministry down in Hollywood, and there's a yellow sign out there. It has details of things you can bring, but I just want to encourage you to, if you have some food or, or clothing or things that, to help out, that this would be a great time to do that. Um, now, as far as Jack's concerned, uh, from what I understand, you ate it on your bike this week. Um, he, uh, you can see he's got a sling there. He can't hold his arm up because he's got it sling there. But uh, I guess someone, he says, somebody had walked out in front of him and he had to slam on the brakes and turned his wheel and flew over them. And did you land on your head or your shoulder? Yeah, messed up your helmet. And Well, you know, <clears throat> we had an eyewitness there. Um, we didn't get a picture of it, but they were able to meet with a sketch artist. And apparently, um, this is what actually happened. I like the cell phone there, Jack. I guess uh, there's no hands-free law on bikes, I guess, huh? But anyway, that's a great one. <clears throat> so actually, you could be praying for Jack. It was a very painful experience. Spent several hours in ER, right, uh, after that. So um, I would appreciate prayer for, for him. Um, you know, in the wake of 9-11, there's been a lot of talk about war, the war on terrorism, the war going on in Afghanistan as well. And brothers and sisters, as serious as these wars are, there is a much more significant and greater war going on that you and I are engaged in right now. And this war is not a battle using fists or guns or bombs. Uh, the casualties are not solely injuries or loss of life. The war we are in is one over truth. And the casualties are broken lives and lost souls. In this conflict, our adversary is Satan, a much more powerful enemy than Al-Qaeda or any human army. He desires the ruin and destruction of mankind, not solely in this life, but especially in the life to come. And the sad reality of this war is that many of his own spies have infiltrated our camp. Many of Satan's dupes have come into the church, and these are deceitful men who seek to lure people away from the truth. And there are examples all over the place of this happening, of people being deceived by someone who's teaching false doctrine. When I was in junior high, I remember a friend of my father's who was telling my dad about a church that he had visited in San Francisco area in the early 70s. And he was describing as uh, this church that he was in was a mainstream denominational church, uh, had pews and like we have and hymnals. They sang the songs of the faith. They probably sang some of the ones we sang this morning. The preacher taught out of the word of God and as best he could tell, it was a normal church. But he had attended a few weeks and he started to notice some things that just didn't seem right, particularly with the preacher. 
he seemed like very controlling and, and dominating individual. So he decided that the church wasn't for him. He tried to get up and leave uh, during the middle of one service. And the ushers uh, said, sir, go back and sit down. Uh, he wasn't allowed to, to, to leave. But uh, later on, he was able to get out of the church. And he tried even to, to get other people to get out of there as well. Within a few years, uh, this church had drawn some attention from the community. People began to be concerned about some things that were going on there. And so the pastor convinced his congregation. Remember, this was a, from a mainstream denomination. He convinced his congregation to sell all their possessions and move down to South America, to Guyana. And it was there in 1978 that Jim Jones led a mass suicide, a massacre of both adults and children. You know how he did it? He took some Kool-Aid. He put water in a vat, put the Kool-Aid in there, and then laced it with cyanide. And then they made the kids drink it first. And then the adults drank it after them. And then he himself drank it. In the end, 914 people died, almost 300 kids They were tragically deceived and they wasted their lives at the direction of a madman. Brothers and sisters, Satan hates you. He hates all of mankind. He hates us. He doesn't care if you're a man or a woman. He doesn't care if you're young or old. He doesn't even care if you're disabled or healthy. He only desires your death and particularly the death of your soul. He's deceived billions with false doctrine all over this world for many centuries, lulling them into a false sense of security. There are many, many people who think they're on their way to heaven, but are actually on a path to hell. And one of Satan's primary tools in this battle are false teachers. They are not just out there either. They're not just outside of of the churches in America. They have infiltrated many evangelical churches. Some have even been here. And I'm sure some will continue to try to come in here. Trying to lure us away with false teachings. Paul warned us of this. You remember what he said to the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20. He told them, he said, be careful, be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. You know, we look at a guy like Jim Jones. You need to realize he came from among ourselves and deceived many. These false teachers are described as savage wolves feasting on those who would listen to their false doctrine. What is our defense? How are we as God's sheep to be protected from this? Well, God gives an answer in Titus chapter 1, and I want you to turn there with me this morning. Titus 1. And it is there that Paul uh, gives instruction. It is there that he communicates that the frontline defense that God has established is godly leaders who must be above reproach and cling to the word of God so they might feed his sheep and protect them from false teachers. The book of Titus, along with First and Second Timothy, forms the famous Bible trilogy of the pastoral epistles. These were epistles that letters written by Paul uh, to men for instruction to help establish the church and help the church to understand what it's to be about and what it's to do. 
And Titus, he was a Gentile, likely led to Christ by Paul, as we see in verse 4. Paul calls him my true child. And he's also a man who loved to challenge. Paul would use him often and send him out on various missions. He was the guy that Paul sent to Corinth to help address some of the significant issues that were going on in the Corinthian church. And Paul had another challenge for Titus, another opportunity in the ministry for him. And that was on the island of Crete, which was an island that's uh, southeast. It's a large island southeast of Greece. And it is there that uh, we see Paul tell Titus in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And what we, as best we can tell, what likely happened was that as Paul was released from prison in Rome uh, that we read about in Acts 28, he uh, went on a journey to visit some of the churches he had been ministering to in the past. And on his way, he stopped in the island of Crete and he had with him his disciple Titus. And Paul wanted to continue moving on. He probably wanted to go to Ephesus or Colossae, as we read in Philemon 2, to meet with Philemon. And he leaves Titus there on the island. And we learn here that there are many churches that are on this island and they had a mission, Paul and Titus, but it was unfinished. And Paul wanted Titus to remain there to set in order, he says, what remains. That was is to complete, to set right, to correct what was left over. There were things that Titus needed to be there for. And as you read through the letter that Paul wrote to Titus, uh, one of the main themes there that he gives Titus is to exhort him in the midst of all the false teaching that was going on in Crete that Titus was to proclaim sound doctrine so that the salvation brought about by God's grace would lead to godly lives within those who were on Crete. But see, there was a problem. Titus was not going to remain there forever. He was going to die someday, and, and likely Titus didn't even stay there for the duration of his ministry. He moved on to other things. So he wasn't going to be there to be a protection And that's what gets us to the second reason that Paul had left him on the island there. And that was so that he would put in charge or appoint elders in every city. That was how God was going to establish the feeding and protection of his flock. It was going to be through godly leaders. It was going to be through men who who we will see cling to the word of God. Paul puts great emphasis on this as we see at the end of verse 5 where he says there, As I directed you. And Paul was not giving a a casual passing instruction to Titus as he was leaving on the boat. You know, he wasn't floating away. Oh, yeah. Hey, Titus, uh, take care of the leader leader thing. You know, that that was that's not the language that Paul used here at all. He says, as I directed you directed here is an authoritative command. And Paul repeats the pronoun I here in the original language for emphasis. He's saying, Titus, Titus, this is important. Do not forget what I told you, what I strongly commanded you to do, which is to set in order what remains and appoint elders, godly men who meet God's specifications. We're going to look at those specifications here in verses 6 through 16. I will read them to you here in Titus chapter 1. These are Paul's continued instructions as to just how the church is going to be protected. Beginning of verse 6, God says, Namely, If any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching 
that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So you get a picture here of what's going on in Crete? It was a serious situation. False teachers were running amok on the island. They needed to be stopped. Godly men were needed who, as Adrian pointed out earlier this morning, who would yield the sword of the word in order to defend God's sheep, in order to protect them from the wolves. And false teachers did not only exist on the island of Crete in the first century A.D. No, they are alive and well today and in in our very churches, as I've said before. In fact, did you know that uh, Jim Jones was born in Indiana in a small town called Crete? Believe it or not. Interesting. Paul's instruction to Titus here in verses 5 through 16 is directly applicable to us today. We face the same danger. We face the same challenges. We face the same false teachers as Titus and Paul did in their day. And these verses here show the character the duty and the urgency of shepherds who must be above reproach and rely on God's word to feed and protect the flock. Now, some of you may be asking at this point or thinking, well, this, what am I supposed to get out of this passage? This passage is addressed to elders and I'm not one of them. How would it apply to me? Well, for one, you need to get to know your leaders. You need to get to know what God requires of them. You need to help them be accountable to God's standard. You need to be praying for your leaders and knowing their responsibilities is going to help you to be able to pray more specifically for them. You know, many people, when they're looking for a church, they'll ask me what some characteristic or qualities of a solid church are. What would you tell them? Well, God gives specific instruction here that they need to be a church that has solid godly leadership. That's one thing that's of vital importance. Dads, you need to know what God requires of shepherds so that you can better shepherd your own family. These same principles would apply to you. You're to feed and protect your family. And the standards of a character of a leader are a model for everyone to follow, right? God just doesn't want holy leaders. He wants a holy people. And God has laid out for us an example of what that would look like. In Titus 1, 5 through 16, we're going to first look at the shepherd's character in verses 5 through 8. And then we're going to look at the shepherd's duty in verse 9. And then the shepherd's urgency in verses 10 through 16. Let's first look at his character in verses 5 through 8. God requires those who are to lead his flock to meet specific standards in order to be fit to shepherd. And Paul twice repeats the summary requirement that these shepherds are to have. He says there in verse 7, they must be above reproach they must be blameless that is there no accusation that is made against them can stick 
that they are characterized in such a way that if somebody accuses them of something that is heinous or wicked, that it would not stick. There is nothing immorally in their life that disqualifies them. Their testimony is consistent with the faith that they proclaim that they have. And why must he be above reproach? Why is it that he is to be blameless? Again, he doesn't say they're perfect, right? But they need to model a life that characterizes a godly a godly life. But why is that? Why must he be above reproach? Look at verse 7. Paul gives the reason there. He says, because he is God's steward. And stewards in those days were managers of households. They were responsible to make sure the house was running smoothly for the person that they answered to, the person they reported to. And whose household is it that the elders have been given oversight of? What does it say there in the text? It's God's house. It's his household. This is his family. This is not the elders' church. This is not my church. This is not Jack Hughes' church. Whose church is this? This is Jesus' church. Right? This is his house. And God's house is precious to him. Those in his household are precious to God. I mean, if you and your spouse were going to go out on a date and you needed somebody to babysit your children, would any of you just pull out the phone book and at random look through the book and, oh, that name's interesting. Let me call that person. Hey, Frederick, you busy tonight? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my name, uh, uh, my name's Tim. I, I got some, my, my kids. I need somebody to watch them. You free? You'd never do that, right? Why not? Why not? And your children are precious to you, right? And you, whoever you have watching your children, you want them to meet a certain standard, a certain requirement that you have. You're not going to give responsibility for that to just anybody. And in the same way, God has specific standards for those who would be responsible for his household. He's very particular about this. And that's why the elders here at Calvary, we seek to be very careful in the elder selection process to make sure that the men are qualified. And that's true for anyone who holds a position of leadership here in this church. We take it very seriously because these are God's, you are God's sheep. This is his house. And God wants us to be careful. Now, while the overarching characteristic of the godly shepherd is to be above reproach, Paul does give a a representative list here of what that would look like. We see that the godly shepherd is to be an elder. That is one who is mature in his faith, one who has dignity, a man who's been tested over time. We see that he's to be an overseer, to watch over the entire flock. He's to be a steward, that is a manager, not one who lords over those under his care, not one who is seeking to be in control. He's to be a man that's singly devoted to his wife. He's to be a man who manages his own household well. His children are not in total rebellion. His children are faithful to what the Father requires. He's not characterized by pride or anger or greed. He's not mastered by any substance. Rather, he's kind. He's hospitable. He loves what is good. He loves what is just. He is honest. He is disciplined. He's a man of exemplary character. And as I said, this list is not an exhaustive list, right? We don't see anything in here about lying. But do you think God would want liars for elders? No, of course not, right? But this list is here meant to represent the overall picture of what a godly shepherd who is above reproach looks like. And what's arresting from this list is not what's included here, but what's missing. There's no reference here to business acumen to business 
ability. There's no reference here to religious training, to life accomplishments, to intelligence, to management experience or skills. None of that's listed here. Listen, a leader's ministry flows from his character. You remember Ezra, right? Jack mentioned him not too long ago. Ezra 7.10, his testimony was that he studied the law of the Lord and then practiced it and then taught it. Ezra's role as a shepherd came from his character. And many people tend to look today at skill rather than character. They tend to look at how good does this guy communicate? How entertaining is he? How skillful is he as he teaches? And there are many examples of this where people have thrown out God's standards of leadership just because of a gifted man. There was a church in the South some years ago, conservative evangelical church, and as the pastor announced his unbiblical divorce to his wife, the congregation cheered. Not lying. They erupted in cheers. There was another a well-known conservative preacher here in Southern California who had a large radio ministry and who had been caught in a seven-year adulterous relationship with another woman while he was in the pulpit. And rather than stepping away from ministry that he had been disqualified from, within six months, another church took him on as a leader. I've experienced this myself where there was a conservative Bible church that I attended and the pastor there had been confronted with his own pride and greed and manipulation. But many in the congregation did not want him to go. You know the reason? Because they said, well, he's a good preacher. What's going on here? How can we be lowering God's standard because of the skills of somebody, because they're entertaining, because they're a good communicator? Don't place a man's skills above God's word. We can never do that. We can never do that. Now, since most of you in here are not elders, in fact, I can only see a handful. Does that mean God doesn't care if you meet these standards or not? Is this list just for them? No, of course not, right? What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? All of us are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. First John 2, 6 says, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. How about you? Are you seeking to be above reproach in your home and in your heart? Are you diligently working at being a faithful spouse, a godly parent, to be hospitable and kind? Are you allowing the enemy a foothold into your life through pride or anger or habit, addiction, bitterness. You're to be working at these things too. They are qualities that are to be pursued by all of God's children, not just his leaders. Paul moves from the shepherd's character in verses 5 through 8 to the shepherd's duty in verse 9. And that duty is for the shepherd to rely on God's word, to teach and feed the flock and to protect them from false teachers. Verse 9 says the godly shepherd is the one who is holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. Faithful word here refers to the only reliable word ever given to mankind, the only trustworthy word that is written and came from a God who does not lie, as, Titus, as Paul told Titus in verse 2. It is the word of God. And in accordance with the teaching simply refers to the fact that it is the word which the New Testament, prophet, or the New Testament apostles wrote it is the word which the old testament prophets have handed down to us 
the elder must hold fast that word as as has been given to us and Holding fast is an idea of it's to to cling to, to to hold tightly, to rely on, to be devoted to. Um, It reminds me of a trip uh, we took to Yellowstone with my family a number of years ago. Anyone been to Yellowstone in here? A few of you been to the Grand Canyon, the Yellowstone. It's that's one of my favorite places in the park. Yeah, yeah, the geysers fine. You know, that's cool. But you know what? This you got to see the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone. Because at one end of that, there's a waterfall, a huge waterfall, and there's a pathway that lets you go down. And you can actually get all the way down where you're you're right. They built a deck that's over, that that sees over that waterfall. And it's an amazing experience because you can feel the force of that waterfall. It's a huge amount of water that's, that's coming over the edge. And you can go up and stand and look over it. But it's a little bit eerie feeling standing up and over that edge. And I remember when we went, my son Daniel, he's about a year old, um, and as I, I held him looking over, I was holding fast to my son. I was clinging to him. Um, that's the idea here. Just a tight reliance, a tight connection. Um, unlike the hair on the top of my head, which is definitely not holding fast. <laughs> my wife cut it the other day and just said, honey, it's, you know, it's getting worse. Uh, so... <laughs> Luke 16:13 gives us a little more insight into the word there where Jesus says no man can serve two masters he will be devoted to one and despise the other the word for devoted there is the same idea it's the same word holding fast clinging to relying upon the question is though how can you tell if someone's clinging to the word well how much does he reference and explain scripture when he teaches or do you hear the verse and then get a lot of stories or a lot of his own wisdom. Does he really know the word? If you go up to him and ask him a question or email him a question, is he able to provide you an answer from Scripture? Do you see him rely on the word in his own life? What does he do in times of difficulty? Where does he turn for wisdom and understanding? Does he himself submit to the word? Is he convicted by it? You see, a man who's holding fast the word will look like the man described in verses 6 through 8. His character will be consistent with what Paul laid out for the elder in those, in those verses. Before any man can teach truth, he must live it. Many of you are familiar with what Charles Spurgeon said of John Bunyan. Prick him anywhere and you will find that his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text for his soul is full of the word of God. Any of you who have read Pilgrim's Progress would know this. He exuded and oozed scripture. God's shepherd must be like that. He must hold fast the word of God, not simply to teach it, but that he may be changed by it. That's how you can tell if he's clinging to the word. Is he growing? You know, elders aren't guys that have gotten to a place and they've arrived and they can coast the rest of the way. Not a chance. No, they need to be growing just like everyone else. And if they're clinging to the word of God, you will see that in their lives. Brothers and sisters, are you praying for your leaders to be clinging to the scriptures? We struggle too. We struggle at times for time in the word to be devoted in it. We're but men. We need you to be praying for us. Are you doing that? Are you praying that we would be devoted to the word, that we would cling to it, rely on it, love it, meditate on it, dig in it, treasure it? You need to be. Please pray for the elders in this church. How about you? Are you holding fast the word? 
Are you clinging to it? What scriptures come to your mind when you're in a difficult situation or circumstance? Do any? Do any come to your rescue when you're under temptation? As you look at the last year of your life, could you say I'm being changed? I can see growth in my life. If you're clinging to the word, you will. If you look back and say, no, don't see much change there. You're not you're not relying on the scripture. You're not devoted to it. Do you memorize and meditate on it daily? We all know Psalm 119, 11, don't we? Your word I have hidden or treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. You know, there's that idea of devotion again, of treasuring. And we memorize so many things of no eternal value. Right? We, we can rattle off athlete statistics. We can uh, quote for you many songs that we've heard. Economic indices, a lot of you probably might know even what the, what the Dow Jones Industrial Average is at. I have no idea. Seven something, I think. Is it still? Is it six now? I don't know. Events in history. Many people can rattle these things off. What about the Bible? Why can't it not be said of us? We know the Bible better than anything else because we rely on it. We cling to it. We're devoted to it. Memorizing Scripture will help you do that. And remember, memorizing Scripture is for the sake of meditating on it. That's the key. It's not simply having the words in your head. But it's understanding, applying, dwelling on them, meditating on them, and relying on them when you need them. Jesus Christ was a great example of that in Matthew 4, where he battled Satan with Scripture. And you've got to remember that Jesus Christ had to, he chose to grow up as we did. He chose to, he had to memorize passages. He had to study the law of the Lord. And in that moment, when he was faced with our greatest enemy himself, he was able to respond with truth. Well, in the latter half of verse 9, Paul gives the reason that the overseer must cling to the faithful word. And that reason given there is that he may be able to exhort and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Again, listen, a leader in God's household is not established based on his leadership skills alone. He's not qualified only if he meets the character requirements given in those verses. The stewards in God's house must be able to understand, live, and teach the faithful word to shepherd the flock. That's the whole point. He's to be actively involved, actively engaged in feeding and protecting. Because being an elder is not a position of status or prestige, but it's a position of work. It's hard work. And he's to be actively shepherding by feeding truth and by protecting from error. Paul says first here that the elder must exhort in sound doctrine. The idea of sound there is really the word healthy. He needs to be feeding healthy food, healthy spiritual food to the flock. Now, doctrine is a word that a lot of people shy away from. When you hear that word, you kind of get the picture of a seminary professor or some Bible scholar that never leaves his desk. He's consumed with uh, computer and, and studying. But, you know, other people will say too, well, don't, don't teach me doctrine Just tell me what to do. Make it practical for me. Well, that's the wrong mindset because doctrine is practical. Brian Chappelle said, what we know and believe has everything to do with how we live. Do you love God now? Will you love him less if you learn more about him? It's a good question. Right. We were dating our spouse, right? We wanted to spend time with him or her in order to learn more about them. And as we learn more about them, we grew in our love for them. How much more so God? 
Brad was talking about that earlier. How much do you know of him? Another commentator said, a virtuous man may be ignorant, but ignorance is not a virtue. It would be a strange God who could be loved better by being known less. If a man loves God, knowing a little about him, he should love God more from knowing more about him. For every new thing known about God is a new reason for loving him. I think that's well put. Exhort here is the word parakaleo, and that that carries the idea of coming alongside someone to urge them to pursue a certain course of action, a certain course of conduct. And there are many ways this word is translated because it embodies a a, a myriad of ways that you can do that. Uh, It carries the idea of entreating, urging, exhorting, admonishing, appealing to. And it shows that feeding the flock can be done in many different ways. There are many different ways to instruct someone. A primary function of the elder is to pericoleo in sound doctrine. It's not simply communicating information. It's not simply studying and gaining a knowledge and then, uh, and then um, spewing forth that knowledge. God's under-shepherd must feed. And the difference is he needs to teach so that he's understood. Teaching in and of itself is not the end. Teaching to be understood is. He needs to be clear. He needs to be understandable. That's how people are fed. And for any of you that teach here, if you're teaching in a Sunday school class, teaching a Bible study, a small group, your own families, you need to understand that. If the person that you're teaching doesn't understand what you're saying, you're not teaching them. The goal is to be feeding. The goal is that they're taking it in so that they're nourished by it. And this can be done in a lot of different ways. Who was the master teacher? Greatest teacher ever lived. Jesus Christ, right? How did he approach teaching? Was his standard method? He had a pulpit he carried around with him, slammed it down in the ground, waited for, ground, waited for the crowd, and then started preaching? No, he did preach a lot. No question about that. But he taught in many different ways. One-on-one, individuals, smaller groups. He used illustrations, word pictures. Jack wrote a great book on that, talking about just the, the pictures that Jesus used in order to communicate truth. He taught by dialogue teaching, by preaching. He taught at different times, different places. He taught inside of homes. He taught out in the open meadows and the hills. He taught by example when he washed the disciples' feet. He rebuked, he admonished, he encouraged, he urged, he commanded. All these things depending on the situation. You know, teaching is like feeding a meal to your family. The caring parent is not going to just dig something out of the pantry and throw it on the table and walk away, right? You're going to feed them something that you know is going to nourish them, that you know is going to help them to grow. And so you monitor that. If they're getting sick, you'll evaluate their diet. You take time to prepare a healthy meal. Well, it's the same for the effective teacher. They're going to ensure that as they are feeding, that the person's understanding and being fed by it. They'll take care in making sure that his hearers are growing in the faith. It reminds me of a time when my parents bought my kids this swing set. And it looked like it was going to be a simple job. You know, it came in a box. Um, You know where I'm going with this, right? Um, So we pulled out the instructions. And those instructions were so unclear that it took two grown men with graduate engineering degrees 20 hours to build that dumb thing. 
We spent a whole weekend tightening and untightening bolts on that swing set. Shows how much we loved our kids. But man, it really tested the limits of our sanctification. (laughs) We had that thing for a long time too. Until the kids broke it. So, (laughs) actually they didn't. But are you teaching anyone? Make sure that you're clear. Make sure you're not like that instruction set. That is so frustrating and confusing. When we don't understand what somebody's trying to teach us. If someone teaches you something that isn't clear, go ask questions. Give them gracious feedback. That's okay to do. Because we want to be clear. We want you to be understood. And sometimes guys like me need help with that. So you need to to give us feedback. How often are you praying for those who teach you? How often are you praying that God would help them to be accurate and clear? Do you pray for the person who's preaching on Sunday morning? Right? They've been given a responsibility to, to feed and, and protect you. And you need to be praying for them that they are being able to do that, that God is enabling them to teach in such a way that you understand. Or are you critical of the topic or the delivery? Not only is the shepherd to feed the truth to the flock, he's also to protect them from error. And we see at the end of verse 9, Paul says, he is to refute those who contradict. And just as we are concerned about what our children eat and we're concerned about protecting them from anything that would harm them or from eating anything dangerous, right? We put fertilizers and chemicals away from them. We lock it away in our cabinets. We put it out of reach. And why do we do that? Right? We want to protect them. We want to keep them from eating something that's going to cause them harm. And in the same way, the shepherd must protect God's sheep from the poisons of false teaching. The idea behind refute here is to expose, to reprove, to correct. And it's to correct those who contradict. That word there doesn't mean to disagree with, but it means the idea of being in opposition to. It means the idea of speaking against. The leader is to call to effectively show that person their error from Scripture. That's why there are to be ones who cling to the Word of God, so they can show someone who is, uh, is opposing them, someone who is contradicting them, that this is what the truth is. The shepherd's duty is to rely on God's Word to feed and protect the flock. And Calvin summarized the thought well when he said, A pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. The Scripture supplies him with the means for doing both. The importance of the shepherd's character was seen in verses 5 to 8. We also saw the shepherd's duty in verse 9. In verses 10 to 16, we're given the reason. You see that first word in verse 10, 4? That's telling us the reason that the shepherd needs to have a character that's exemplary, the reason that he has a duty to cling to the word of God to feed and protect is because of what he's going to mention and talk about in verses 10 to 16. And it is there we see the shepherd's urgency. And his urgency is to feed and protect the flock from false teachers, to stop them from feasting on his sheep. At this point, you might be wondering how we're going to cover the remaining seven verses in the time we have left. I'm asking myself the same question. We did it first hour. I think we can make it. Paul gave verses 10 to 16 primarily as the reason why the shepherd must teach and protect the flock. Because false teachers were wreaking havoc on the island. They were running around spreading falsehoods and deceiving many. 
In verses 10 to 16, we'll see two truths that the shepherd must know to handle the presence of false teachers in the flock. And the first one is that he needs to know who they are. And secondly, how to stop them. Paul gives a list of their attributes in verses 10 to 12. And these are characteristics you need to be on the lookout for. He says in verse 10, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. You know, one of the most sobering words in those verses is in verse 10. It's the word many. Paul says there's many out there who are deceiving the flock. They were numerous. They're all over the place. Paul describes them as rebellious to the gospel. They're refusing to submit to it or those who teach it. And he calls them empty talkers. That is, whatever comes out of their mouth is empty. It's devoid of truth. And we learn in verse 10 that these deceivers were especially or primarily those of the circumcision, those non-believing Jews who were trying to add ceremony and law, Old Testament law onto the gospel. They were trying to say that you need Jesus plus circumcision or you need Jesus plus following the Sabbath or you need Jesus plus something else. And it's been no different today. We have the same thing. People all around us are saying you need Jesus and experience or Jesus and baptism or Jesus and Mary. Jesus and the sacraments. Jesus and don't smoke or drink or cuss. You need Jesus and something else. They want to add that on. To be saved, yes, you need the grace of Jesus Christ. But also, hey, this other thing over here. I met a guy that told me, if you're not sharing the gospel, you're not a Christian. He was emphatic about that. And he had to be baptized too. They keep adding things to salvation. And you've got to watch out for people like that. People who want to nail more things on the cross next to Jesus Christ as a means to be saved. But under that sign that said King of the Jews, what was nailed on that cross for your salvation? Jesus Christ alone. That's all that's required. That is the payment necessary. Tacking on these other little things next to him on the cross will not save you. In fact, if you truly believe that, it will damn you. Because Jesus and Jesus alone has paid for your sins. And God says this over and over and over. There's nothing you can do to earn or keep your salvation. It's all of God. And Paul says that these false teachers were teaching that. And notice here too the method that they use. This is very important that you see this. Because they weren't guys that would you know, run through the doors of the church and run up to the front of the pulpit and start yelling things out, right? That'd be a little obvious. Though at the Hollywood church I've heard that some of that stuff's going on down there. They get some guys each, you know, every so often that come in and, and try to do something like that. But no, Paul says here, typically, these deceivers go into small groups. They, they slink in. They find individuals or they find these small groups to propagate their heresy. Because if it was a large group, they'd be found out. But, but the smaller groups, they can pray. They can pick off those who aren't skilled, who don't know the word of God. Second Timothy two or three six, Paul said, among them that is the false teachers are those who enter the households, into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. Right? They try to prey on those who don't know the word. There are still those who do go door to door today. Perhaps you've met some at your door 
They don't show up at my house anymore, but I know they're still out there. But nowadays, they don't have to do that. People that want to propagate false doctrine don't have to get on their, in their cars or on their bikes to come into your house. They can do that on your TV set, on the Internet, in books, audio tapes, on the radio. Our media-saturated culture allows many ways for these false teachers and their false doctrine to enter your homes. Our Christian bookstores are full of their stuff. Brad mentioned the shack earlier. That's why you need to be fed truth on a consistent basis. That's why your leaders need to be clinging to the word of God and teaching it to you so that you can know and have defense against false doctrine. So that you can know the difference between error and truth. Spend time with your shepherds. Let them get to know you. Maybe there are some things in your life that you're not realizing are a source of false doctrine. Let them get to know you and help you with that. Be on the lookout for each other. Do you ask one another question? Hey, what have you been reading lately? Been listening to anybody on the Internet? I remember when I was in Idaho, I was visiting a friend of mine there who uh, was part of the church I had been going to, and uh, he'd been there quite a while. I felt he was pretty solid. And uh, so I'd asked him, you know, so what have you been listening to that's been encouraging uh, to you lately? And he pulls out this box of tapes, huge box of tapes, and I'm looking through them, and it's all Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn. And I was shocked because I thought this guy knew better. Let's see, he was being fed false doctrine. And I told him, hey, you got to watch out for these. you got to get rid of this stuff. So I helped him do it. You need to be doing the same thing. Watch out for one another. In further describing these false teachers, Paul reminds us at the end of verse 11 that these characters are not innocent doves. They're not, you know, they don't have this honest, uh, they're honestly trying to help others see the truth. No, they're in it for the money. They're greedy. Like Simon, who wanted to buy the Holy Spirit with money so that he could do tricks. I don't need to go. We, we got so many examples of this. You know, you remember Oral Roberts who said God was going to strike him dead if he didn't raise a certain amount of money by a certain time. Or Jim and Tammy Faye Baker take the cake with their multi-million dollar homes and their air-conditioned doghouse for Fifi. And, and there's many, many examples of this paul says here that their character the character of these cretan false teachers actually fulfilled a description of those in crete from a poet some 600 years earlier epimedes i think is how you pronounce it he's the one that wrote that they are perpetual liars evil beasts and lazy gluttons and this actually was a proverb that many people knew in their day it was a poem um in fact, one guy uh, changed it to a more modern uh, idea. Liars ever, men of Crete, nasty brutes that live to eat. thought it was pretty clever. You know, it's probably not something they put on their come visit Crete brochures. <laughs> right? But Paul was just using that proverb to describe the character of those who are false teachers. These aren't good guys that just, you know, are somehow, uh, uh, you know, trying to, 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 to do the right thing. They're dangerous. They're very dangerous. And that's why Paul says they must be silenced. They must not be given opportunity to proclaim the poison that they're teaching. Paul says that in verse 13. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. The idea of reprove is the same that he used back in verse 9 to refute. And it's to be done in a, a severe manner. It means it's to be cut, cut it straight, cut it hard. Don't mince with words. If someone's identified as a false teacher, the shepherd needs to deal with him or her before further damage results. 
The false teacher must be confronted with the specifics of what he or she is teaching from Scripture. Again, they must be shown their error. And I'll mention why that is in a minute. And that's why, again, that the leader needs to be clinging to the Word of God. And Paul gives an interesting twist in verse 13. He says there to reprove them severely. And then instead of saying, so there, reprove them. So there. What does he say? He says, reprove them so that. He says, reprove them so that they would be sound in faith. In rebuking the false teacher, you also need to show a concern for their soul. The goal in bringing severe reproof is to help the false teacher be sound in the faith. Right? Because they not only are deceiving others, they are self-deceived. And they are propagating truth and believing something, propagating false truth and believing something that will also damn their own souls. You confront the false teacher in your midst. Remember Paul's guidance to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 where he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So the idea here is to win them to the truth. God may change their hearts. I've heard many stories of those caught up in cults who, when they heard the truth of the gospel, when they were confronted with the message of the salvation of and the cross in Christ alone, were saved. (laughs) The power of the gospel saved them. And Paul is identifying that here. He says in verses 15 and 16, they think they know God. They're saying they have allegiance to God, but their lifestyles deny that. They are lost. They're on their way to hell and they need the gospel. And Paul says, first, you need to proclaim the truth to them and reprove them severely to wake them up, to get their attention. But if the false teacher will not listen, if they refuse to listen to that gentle correction, then he must be put away from the flock. He must be silenced. He must not be given opportunity to propagate his error. Paul brings us up at the end of Titus in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, rejects a factious man after a first and second warning. He cannot be allowed to continue his error. And we take this very seriously here. If any of you hear something that's strange, doesn't make sense, that doesn't seem right, you need to let one of your elders know. You need to do that so that we can take care of it. You need to participate yourselves in keeping the doctrine pure here. Are you on the lookout for heresy yourself? Are you asking God to give wisdom and boldness to the elders as we confront these things? You need to be doing that. I've mentioned praying for elders many times for a reason, because you need to be doing that. We'd be foolish to think that the danger of heresy is not possible in our own church. Even though our commitment to Scripture is so strong, many can sneak in and undermine. It's a very real, very real thing. You know, I, had, I looked at several pictures of the Jim Jones massacre. In fact, a brother came up to me right after first service who was part of the military operation that went in there after it happened. And he told me that a lot of those men who were there never recovered. Rugged military individuals, soldiers who had seen a lot. And when they happened upon that scene, 
they were messed up for many of them, just like I said, have not recovered. And he started tearing up about it himself. You know, if you look at pictures, you see bodies everywhere. Over 900 of them. You see little children with cups, punch, spilled next to them. I was going to show you some of those pictures, but because of the young ones in our audience, I didn't want to do that. You need to see it because it's a very real picture of what Satan wants to do to you. It's a real picture of what he wants to do to every human on the face of the earth. He hates your guts. He wants you ineffective. He wants you in hell. That's his job. And he doesn't sleep. And he doesn't care if you're tired or sick. He doesn't care. We need to be careful. And you know the greatest tragedy of all those people in Guyana? It wasn't just that they lost their lives. They lost their souls. When they awoke after drinking that Kool-Aid, they were in hell. Because Jim Jones had given them a false gospel. This is serious business. There are many Jim Jones out there ready to hand you one of these, ready to, to give this out with just a little bit of their cyanide mixed in. They want you to drink it. Take some. It tastes good. Actually, Kool-Aid is good. Nice and sweet. They want to peddle their snake oil of heresy for their own benefit. And that's why we're always watching for any who would spread heresy. That's why we name names. Because we want you to be warned. We want you to understand that there are many out there who are deceivers. To my fellow elders, you need to listen to me for a minute. Man, you need to be above reproach. You need to cling to God's word. You need to hold it fast, to be devoted to it. You know, we're responsible for this flock. We are responsible to feed them truth. We are responsible to protect them, man. It's a serious business. We need to guard vigilantly against error. Our lives need to be an open book. We need to be accountable to one another and to the people here so that we could stay above reproach. You need to accept Rebuke with humility and show love without partiality, men. There are many fathers, husbands in here. This passage has something to say to you too. You need to feed and protect your families. What are you allowing in your homes? Do you have a copy of the shack in your bookshelf? What is in your homes, men? What is on your computers? What is it that your children or your wife are being exposed to? You need to protect them from error. You need to protect them. Feed them truth. You need to be living out these characteristics that Paul has called the elders to. You need to be the example in your home. Are you doing that? Are you holding fast the faithful word? And to the rest of you, again, I plead with you, pray consistently for your leaders. Please, please do that. Be on the alert yourselves. For false teachers. Be clinging to the words yourself so that you are not duped. So that you do not end up drinking a spiritual cup of Kool-Aid. There are always the danger of men like Jim Jones out there among God's sheep. They lace their words with cyanide to poison the spiritual life of those in the flock. False teachers must be silenced. Let's pray.
I'm going to leave a moment of silence so that you can evaluate. Are you clinging to the word? Are you armed for battle? Are you praying for your leaders? Are you seeking to be above reproach in your life? Or are you susceptible to false teaching? Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for the blood that you spilled for your church. We thank you, Lord, for giving up your life so that we could have life. We thank you that you've given us your word so that we can know truth, so that we can be protected from anyone who would seek to lure us away from you. And Lord, in your wisdom and your sovereignty, you've chosen to use men to lead your church, fallible men. But Lord, you've given us your standard and you've given your Holy Spirit to empower these men to be able to walk in a, in a worthy manner, to be able to um, teach and feed and protect the flock. Lord, give us courage to do that. Give us boldness and diligence. God, help us to love your word and to, Lord, love your people. Lord, keep the elders of this church above reproach. Lord, may we never bring shame to your name. Father, I pray for everyone here. I just pray, God, that you would use us to, um, Lord, keep false teaching from entering our body and, Lord, from even those who would seek to teach it to others that we know. Thank you again, Father, for your kindness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the work you are doing all over the world. Please continue to use this church and, and use us, Lord, to expand your kingdom. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.